if I have to even make a single stop to trickle charge in the Yukon, there's no way that I'm going to be able to cross it in 24 hours. A trickle charge. It's a funny term for charging your electric vehicle on the slowest charging speed, basically using a standard wall outlet. And it's a strange thing to be worried about because when I think about the biggest obstacles to a cross-country road trip, it's like finding a hotel room for the night. Who gets to DJ? And do I have enough snacks? What you don't expect on a standard road trip is running out of charge and failing to make it across the Yukon in 24 hours, which in this case could have gotten Tim Truer arrested by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get thrown in jail. The Mounties are going to come after me. To explain how Tim found himself on this very not normal road trip, racing through the Yukon, we have to back up a bit. And we'll return to this in a moment, but you can trace Tim's story back to a few years earlier when he decided to buy a new car, an EV. I really think that they're the cars of the future. I think it makes a lot of sense for fighting climate change to electrify our vehicle fleet. And I wanted to be an early adopter. He also really wanted to put EVs to the test. I've always sort of had it on the back of my mind that I would love to do a long-distance road trip in an EV. It just seemed like a great adventure. Early in the pandemic, Tim was living in Vermont, but he was about to move to Alaska where he grew up, and the move presented an opportunity. My car was in Vermont. I wanted to be in Alaska. I wanted to have my car in Alaska. As simple as that. So Tim decided to drive across the country, 7,600 miles from Vermont all the way to Alaska. Driving that far in a normal car during a pandemic was already a challenge. But an EV, that makes it far more complicated. It's still kind of the wild west in terms of like the infrastructure that's out there. This is The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild the energy systems that are all around us. To slow climate change, we need to transform our buildings, homes, cars, and the economy as quickly as possible. But how do we do it right? I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the Director of Research at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and I study the technologies and systems that power our world. In the next five episodes, we're going to do a deep dive into decarbonizing the entire transportation sector, everything from bulldozers and planes to ships and trains. And today, we start with cars. So back to Tim. In June of 2020, he had packed up his entire Vermont apartment into a 2019 Chevy Bolt. Tim loved his Bolt. The 2019 Chevy Bolt has a 960-pound lithium-ion battery. In terms of energy storage, that's enough to store about the same amount of energy that you get in two gallons of gasoline. But electric cars are just so much more efficient, and electric motors are so much more efficient. When Tim says electric cars are way more efficient, let me put it to you this way. In an internal combustion car, we are literally blowing up fuel inside of an engine to move thousands of parts inside our drivetrain to move us down the road. But in an electric car, we're using virtually all the battery's energy just to move around 20 parts. What this means is that a Chevy Bolt's battery might only hold two gallons of gasoline's worth of energy, but it can go an EPA-rated 238 miles. Talk about miles per gallon. That's four to five times the average internal combustion engine vehicle. The thing is, Tim was about to drive 7,600 miles. When I left on this trip, I was, all my friends thought I was crazy, and I kind of thought I was crazy too. I was giving myself maybe a 50% chance of making it without major incident. Although EV batteries carry less energy than a standard tank of gas, the real technology that Tim was putting to the test was charging infrastructure. Just like most of our cars today need gas stations, electric vehicles need chargers. And there are three types. The first is the same outlet that you plug your microwave into. 
most of the charging that I do is just plugging into a standard wall outlet at home. It's called trickle charging or level one charging. And it doesn't give you a ton of range, maybe like two to three miles of range per hour plugged in. But if you're just doing local commuting, it's, it's enough for most people. Then there are level two chargers, which you might find in parking lots or apartment complexes and sometimes in people's homes. They're often ones that are free or cheap, and that's more like you know 20 to 30 miles of range per hour. So you know if I'm at shopping at the grocery store, I can plug in for an hour and get a nice little chunk of charge. And finally, level three chargers or superchargers. These are fast. You can get you know up to 50% of your battery charged up for me in like uh, a 30 minutes. But that also depends a lot on what kind of car you're driving and what kind of supercharger it is. Gas stations are everywhere. And if a gasoline car had only a few hundred miles of range, it wouldn't be a big problem for the vast majority of trips. You can always find a pump to fill up. But charging stations, not so much, at least not yet. So to make it from Vermont to Alaska in an EV, Tim had some planning that he needed to do. He couldn't go straight through New York to Canada to Alaska. Because of the pandemic, Canada was turning people away at the border. Although Tim did hear that he had a chance of crossing the border if he went further west. But he also couldn't go through the Great Plains because they didn't have many EV chargers. So Tim ended up having to take an even longer route through Kansas, Colorado, and Utah, where there's a network of superchargers before heading up to Canada. But he was still going to pass through areas without much charging infrastructure. So Tim began to research, taking special note of one particular type of stop, RV parks, which have chargers for RVs, but EV drivers can use them as long as they have the right plug. I built a spreadsheet with every single RV park on these chargerless stretches of Canada and Alaska. And for each one, I had to figure out where they closed because of the pandemic, what kind of charging infrastructure do they have. And I did a lot of calling to make sure these places were actually the information about them online was open. And so he took his spreadsheets and hit the road in June. And for the first month, things went pretty well, if a little bit awkward sometimes. Many car dealerships have superchargers, so he spent a lot of time sheepishly waiting around outside of them, trying to see if he could charge up. And he also spent a lot of time at Walmarts, which often have chargers. And aside from a few close calls, driving an EV across America was turning out to be doable if you planned it right. And as he drove into Montana and approached the long stretches of the chargerless Yukon, he was armed with his meticulously researched RV spreadsheet. But even that turned out to not be quite enough. At the U.S.-Canada border, an officer of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, a.k.a. the Mounties, sternly explained to Tim that Canada's Yukon Territory, which he would be crossing to get to Alaska, had a new rule. And that rule was going to make his trip a lot harder. People driving to Alaska were only given 24 hours to cross the Yukon. The stretch of the Alaska Highway through the Yukon is more than 500 miles. So to drive it in 24 hours in an electric car is no easy task. And there's only one EV charger along the route. 500 miles, 24 hours, one charging station. What could go wrong? So the first thing that happened when I crossed the Yukon is I went to this RV park where I thought I was going to be able to access a 50 amp charger. A 50 amp charger is like the functional equivalent of a level two EV charger, as long as you have the right plugs. They had advertised it online, they advertised it on their sign on the highway. And when I got there and I asked them about it, they said, oh no, we haven't turned on that system. You can't use any of the 50 amp chargers. We're sorry. And so I thought, I'm screwed. There's no way that I'm gonna be able to cross it in 24 hours. 
So most of us aren't driving our cars across two countries. The fact that Tim could drive across the U.S. in an EV shows how far the charging infrastructure has actually come. But Tim's situation in the Yukon, which we're going to come back to, brings us to a question. How is our EV infrastructure going to evolve to enable a big switch around the world from internal combustion engines to electric motors? And how do we make sure it happens fast in time to slow climate change? We're in the early days of... EV infrastructure. We're basically all out there driving Model T Fords around trying to figure out, you know, what this whole gas station business is about. To figure out what it's going to take to build up a system that can support zero carbon personal vehicles, I turned to a transportation expert, someone who also happens to be very attached to her own car. I ship my car from California to Sweden because I'm kind of attached to my car. When Sonia Ye moved to Sweden, she brought her hybrid with her. It was March 2011 when Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster happened. So that car was the last car on the on the parking lot because Japan basically lost one third of their power. They shut down all the nuclear plants. They weren't able to deliver any new cars for a couple months. So I basically grabbed the last car. And I love it. I really love that car. Sonia Ye is a professor in transport and energy systems at Chalmers University in Sweden. She studies how societies learn and adapt to new transportation technologies. We started out by talking about the very basic facts around cars. Do you know about, I mean, how many cars are there in the world right now? Are we talking millions? Billions? (laughs) Trillions? I mean, how many cars are there around the world? Yeah, right now, well, in 2015, we had about one billion cars. And it's projected that we'll probably get to 2 billion cars by 2040. And the new car sales right now, it's about 71 million per year. And one third of that, about 20 million, come from China. At the highest level, like we're just going to zoom up and be on top of these billions of cars. What is it going to take to decarbonize our personal vehicles, so the cars and small trucks that we park at our homes and drive ourselves each day. What can we do to get to net zero with them? I mean, currently there are several solutions. One is to use more biofuels, which is, you know, using some kind of bio-based products. Either it would be corn ethanol or soybeans as a first generation or or what we call it, better biofuels that are produced from cellulosic materials because they don't directly compete with food. We can also electrify our personal vehicles, uh, electric vehicles, either pure pure electric or hybrid electric. Then there are other options like natural gas vehicles, methanol cars, or hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. So those are the different options. And of course, we can talk a little bit more about what options are more likely. I know I've heard you speak about, I think, what you term three big revolutions when it comes to transportation. Can you step through what those three buckets are and and talk about, I mean, what are they and what do they mean for the future of transportation? Lou Fulton at UC Davis basically popularized this term, three revolutions, which uh, basically is electrification and autonomous vehicles and mobility as a service. And 
electrifications is using electricity in cars instead of fossil fuel. But you can also look at a broader other modes of transportation. I know we've talked mostly on personal vehicles, but we can also electrify trucks, even long-haul trucks, or marine shipping, aviation, mm-hmm. and, and trains. So that's electrification. And then there, the second one is autonomous vehicles. And that would be, or a, a more layman term would be self-driving cars. But again, you can also apply that concept and, and that concept is probably adopted faster in other modes. You also apply for other modes like buses, trucks, airplanes has been, you know, on autopilot for a long time, <laughs> uh, ships and off-road vehicles uh, like mining equipments and so on and so forth. And then last one is mobility of service, which is like Uber or Lyft or car sharing, bike sharing, e-scooters. Those are the third category. Why don't we have a lot of EVs on the road right now? And within that, like if we wanted to have a lot more in the future in a net zero world, what do we need to do to support just widespread use of electric vehicles? That's a very good question. And there are two challenges with uh, electrification. One is the cost of the technology, particularly the cost of batteries. And the second one is infrastructure because the batteries tend to be heavy and they tend to have lower, shorter ranges than gasoline diesel vehicles that we're used to. You need to have infrastructure for people to charge their vehicles probably more frequently than they're used to and a little bit longer than they're used to. So those are two challenges associated with EVs, uh, more expensive cars and different way of using infrastructure to charge your vehicles. I'm trying to picture what that different process looks like when we talk about going to a gasoline or diesel pump and, you know, filling our tank versus charging our electric vehicle in in the future. Can you talk to me about the differences between, you know, what those two processes look like, charging versus filling your tank? When you drive an EV, of course, EV can be pure hybrid electric or it can be plug-in hybrid electric. Plug-in means that you have smaller batteries, but if you run out of batteries, then you can refill uh, your cars at a refueling station. But for pure electric battery vehicles, you have to charge them while the car is not moving. The the way we think about refueling your charging your electric vehicles, you don't necessarily go to charge fueling stations. You can charge your car at home, or you can charge your car at work. You can charge your car while you're shopping, grocery shopping, or at a coffee shop. Um, so there are many many different options. So, and some people see them as negative because you it changed the way we're mm-hmm. used to. Um, some people see them as positive because instead of driving to pump stations to pump your uh, pump the gas, you basically when you park at home, your car will get refueled. If we said, you know what, magic wand, every single vehicle that's sold from right now on is an electric vehicle. Mm -hmm. How long would it be until all the cars on the road would be an electric vehicle, approximately? Right. So on average, we kind of assume an average lifetime of vehicle is about 15 years. So that means that every year, about 7% of vehicles will be retired and go into either secondhand market or 
shipped to other countries. That's kind of another side of the story. But they will be retired from the fleet. So if you use that rate, approximately it would take about 15 to 17 years to replace the entire fleet to the new vehicles that if 100% are, of vehicles are sold as electric vehicle today. So when we t- say 15 to 17 years, is that fast enough? If we want to reach net zero, want to meet these Paris Agreement targets we talk about and we read about in the news, is 15 to 17 years fast enough? Right. And when I say 15 to 17 years means that to, from today, all the vehicles will need to be electric. And we know it's not going to happen. Right now, probably the high share is in Norway, about 70%, which is very good. In the US, it's in other places are far less. So that means that the pace of reducing car emissions is, pro- is going to take much longer than that. Is that fast enough? Probably not. If we want to be if we want to achieve net zero by 2030 or 2040. So electric vehicles, you commented on how they're expensive right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking even in Europe and the U.S., where we've got a lot of infrastructure and relatively wealthy and developed countries, do we see a future where actually electric vehicles become accessible to people who don't have, you know, an extra $10,000 or 10,000 euros or pounds or whatever currency just sitting in their pocket ready to spend? Right. That's a very good question and very good question for me to make a little bit clarification. In terms of when I say electric vehicles are expensive today, it's mostly on the batteries. And so, but the experts expect the batteries costs are going to come down really fast to a level that's comparable to gas and cars very soon. That's on the kind of the purchase price end. At the same time, electric vehicles actually are much cheaper to operate. So it means that they're cheaper than gasoline. When you go, when you refuel your car, they are actually, depending on which state you're in, it can be one third to a quarter cheaper than gasoline. So there's this trade-off. Yeah. That, that's actually, again, it's a nice trade-off because you you do, we no longer need to live in a world where gas price affect kind of every aspect of our life. We pay more when gas prices are high. So that's a very good thing to also keep in mind. I think there's definitely a lot of opportunities for people to afford those cars. And I can certainly imagine there will be more charging stations. You see more and more charging stations everywhere, uh, outside of Starbucks, for example, mm-hmm. or at your workplaces and homes or on the streets. Some apartment buildings have charging stations. So charging stations will become more and more affordable. And that those will help the adoption of electric vehicles. They're becoming a technology people see and use every day. And I think that it's definitely a lot more accessible for the majority of the population. When you talk about autonomous vehicles, I know you mentioned that autonomous vehicles, I mean, we've had autonomous planes, basically self-flying planes for a long time. But when we talk about it for our personal vehicles, for our cars, I mean, how does that affect the decarbonization of our cars? And also, I've heard you say the phrase autonomous vehicles, well, that could be heaven or hell when it comes to the future of our own personal transport, our own personal mobility. What do you mean by that? When we talk about autonomous vehicles, it's important to keep in mind that they don't necessarily lead to decarbonization by itself. Mm -hmm. Because there are many different 
different ways of using autonomous vehicles. They're thinking about autonomous vehicle being shared mm-hmm. or they're part of this other revolution that I talk about, mobility of a service. So they are fleet owned by companies that are probably electrified and shared and just pick you up uh, for a particular trip. Or they can be sort of like public transportation where they just take you from your home to the nearest bus stop and put you on public transportation because that's more efficient way of moving people and lower carbon. So there's there's a lot of uncertainty of how people will use autonomous cars in the future, either like the hell scenario where every single private cars our self-driving cars, and we use it to as our personal chauffeur that we eat in the car, work in the car, <laughs> and hang out with friends in the car, and just drastically increase the demand. That would be kind of a hell scenario. Or they would be kind of heaven scenario where all the autonomous cars are shared with many people, and they're owned by fleet, and they're electrified and connected. So that would be the heaven scenario where that's that mode of usage has more potential to reduce drastically reduce carbon emissions so that's the important thing we want to kind of understand and it's also very hard to predict how the future will evolve because uh, i think this is a trend that's driven by consumers preferences and we don't fully understand the consumer preference how people use their the future vehicles at this point yeah i think i remember I think it was Dave Turk when he was at the International Energy Agency. Now he's in the U.S. Department of Energy. But I remember him saying autonomous vehicles, well, they could lead to a 50% decrease in demand or they could lead demand to double. <laughs> you know, and this is this is what you were talking about with heaven and hell. Like that's a really big different future. And at the heart of the difference in the numbers is how people behave, the choices that we make, and also how the systems are just designed to be integrated or not, which is what you just said. We've got electrification, we've got autonomous vehicles, and we've got mobility as a service. How do these three things work together when it comes to a net zero future? Right. That's a really excellent question. And uh, it's the question I'm most excited in answering, of course. And so with these three revolutions, if I may, I would also add another category, which is artificial intelligence, digitalization that's happening in you know all the sectors that are also changing uh, technologies. And so these for, with these three or four revolutions, they need to work together to help us achieve the decarbonization goal. We talk about heaven and hell scenario. The hell scenario would be these three revolution kind of work in different directions that limited use of electrification and people have the perception of if I drive an electric vehicle car, I'm saving the environment. Therefore, You've probably seen this Hummer, <laughs> the Hummer, Hummer uh, e- uh, electric yeah, commercial. vehicle commercial, yep. right? So you lead to more demand and more driving, and you drive a huge giant machine to pick up your kids or drive to work where you don't really need that big cars. And so that's the electrification. You can lead to wrong perception of you're doing good for the environment, mm-hmm. but induce more demands, unnecessary demand. And same for a mobility of a service that people could also increase use increase their demand uh, for autonomous vehicle. We also talk about it. 
The best combination would be these three revolutions work together, where the future mobility would be electrified and shared. And that would lead to the best opportunity to decarbonize the transportation sector, uh, particularly in personal transport. Here's the thing we haven't talked about with cars. They're really just one part of a much bigger set of transportation solutions. When I asked Sonia what she was most hopeful about when she pictured a zero carbon future, it actually had a whole lot less to do with owning a personal vehicle. I know this is a little bit cheesy because I work on transportation, but when we moved from California to Sweden, Gothenburg, and you know, after two, three years, my kids have a chance to settle down. And I asked them, what was the biggest difference for you? And they thought about it for a while and they say, transportation <laughs> and they say because it means freedom to them in california they can't drive so they're like birds in a golden cage they need to be transported they need to wait until i'm available to take them to sports practice to meet with friends to go shopping but here they just hop onto public transportation, they take the bus, they can come home at 12 o'clock at night and it's totally safe. Yeah, it means freedom for them. And I think that's really, really great. And um, that makes me hopeful and keeps me going. And this is what we're going to talk about more in future episodes. How can we give people more transportation options so they don't have to rely so heavily on cars to live their lives and get to places? Sometimes we really do need cars. Say, for example, you're moving from Vermont to Alaska. If you're Tim Truer racing across the Yukon in the EV, trying desperately to reach Alaska within 24 hours, you also need a fast charging station. Tim thought he'd find one at an RV park, but the one charger that the park advertised, it didn't exist. But Tim is resourceful. He still had his map of the other RV parks in the region, so he kept looking. And he backtracked to another RV park and he met the owner, who just happened to be an electrical engineer. He taught me this really, really valuable trick for EV drivers that are trying to drive through remote areas. And that's that you can use a certain type of splitter that lets you plug into two different either wall outlets or, in this case, 30-amp plugs at the same time. Basically, you can trick a car into thinking that it's plugged into a regular level two charger. That RV map that he had made all those weeks ago, plus this new trick, would be his key to crossing the Yukon. Gosh, it felt like the heavens had opened up and this bright light had come shining down and, uh, you know, the angels were playing uh, music on their little harps. Like it was this incredible moment of salvation that I thought I was totally screwed. And then all of a sudden it just clicked. And in an instant, I was like, Wow, okay, no, I can't actually do this. I'm not going to get arrested. This is amazing. And he did make it. Tim crossed the Yukon and finally the Alaska state line, making it home after five weeks. The only downside to getting back to Alaska is that, you know, I thought, I thought the Yukon, I thought Northern British Columbia had been bad for charging infrastructure. Alaska was way worse. People often associate EVs with urban environments, but the truth is that they're a much more versatile technology. You know, it's a shame because I think I think electric cars actually have a lot to offer a place like Alaska. You know, everybody has a cabin or has access to a cabin or knows somebody that has a cabin that's off the grid. And with a little bit of hacking, it's not not actually that tough to turn an EV into a mobile battery source. 
So, you know, if you have a blackout or if you're, you know, in a cabin off the grid, you can uh, you can actually turn your car into a battery that can power power the home. Alaskan cities also get these terrible cold inversions that trap air pollution, like emissions from tailpipes, close to the ground, like a fog, which can threaten people's lungs and respiratory system and hearts. Zero-emission EVs would help clean up this kind of air pollution. And as EV chargers pop up around the world and more EVs roll onto the roads, this future is not far off. Things are only getting easier from here. And on the one hand, it's like I'm glad that I got to be an early adopter and I got to experience kind of this Wild West uh, Model T Ford days of driving EVs. But I look forward to the day when we uh, when it's you know as easy to take your EV from home and, and know you'll have chargers, fast chargers along the way that'll get you to your destination. And I think we're getting there. And that's our show. Next up on The Big Switch, public transportation. We'll talk about the role of public transportation in decarbonizing the transportation sector. Are you using this show in a classroom? Are you sharing it with other energy nerds? Let us know. Tweet me at MCLOTT and share the show on social media or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people learn about the show. The Big Switch is produced by Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with PostScript Media. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf and Alexandria Herr. A special thanks to our Columbia team, Kirsten Smith, Q. Lee, Liz Smith, and Natalie Volk. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and this is The Big Switch. 